0: Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we can be together and learn from these wise people that have been teaching us this course. Lord, we just pray for the the blessings of every everybody in this room, and that we give thanks to the uh, uh, the war veterans and the people who have given their lives on uh, you know uh, this coming Memorial Day. Lord, we pray these things in your most precious name. Amen. Amen.
1: First, I have a little bit of a commercial. How many of you saw last week the PBS thing on America's Favorite Read? About, they've done some surveys about the 100 favorite novels. Nobody watched that? Do we have anybody here who reads? (laughs) Holy moly! Go to pbs.org and click on the site for America's Favorite Reads. There's a list there of a hundred novels, and some whole series are included as a single title, like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, etc. Uh, In the meantime, it's one of those things where you've heard the phrase vote early and often. Well, you can vote for your favorite on that list as many times as you want to. And I wanted to plug mine, because I just feel it would be something that I think all of you would enjoy. It is quite simply the best novel I have ever read. The novel is A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Anybody read it? Okay, how okay. <laughs> yes, people do read. Okay, um, a prayer for Owen Meany, and I would highly recommend it to especially this group. And to give you an idea of why I might do that, I have taken the liberty, I actually loaded this down on my Kindle, and I want to read you the opening sentence. This is all one sentence, the opening sentence of the novel. I am doomed to remember a boy with a wrecked voice not because of his voice or because he was the smallest person I ever knew or even because he was the instrument of my mother's death but because he is the reason I believe in God. I am a Christian because of Owen Meany. Uh, During the course of the novel John Irving said, Owen Meany would have considered John Calvin soft on predestination. So, good for Presbyterians. And one of the things about John Irving that I absolutely love, and this novel in particular is a masterpiece of it, is that his novels are incredibly carefully crafted. Literally, every single plot line gets tied up neatly. It's one of the best written novels I've ever read, and if the opening line doesn't get you, try the closing paragraph. When we held Owen Meany above our heads, when we passed him back and forth so effortlessly, we believed that Owen weighed nothing at all. We did not realize that there were forces beyond our play. Now I know they were the forces that contributed to our illusion of Owen's weightlessness. They were the forces we didn't have the faith to feel. They were the forces we failed to believe in. And they were also lifting up Owen Meany, taking him out of our hands. Oh God, please give him back. I shall keep asking you. So, read it. Vote for it. because. You know, that's end of commercial. It's my my pick for the best novel I have ever read. But look at the whole list, because there are other novels on there. Okay. What we are doing, I have decided to call from the mountain to the city. So far, we've been trying to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, the first Devar of the five Devarim, that structure Matthew's gospel, and take a look and see what did Jesus see on the mountain or from the mountain, and how does he want us to see. Now, that sermon, this piece, has had a strange and interesting journey. Okay, so one of the things we need to do is do a very quick, this is the 25 cent tour of Matthew's Gospel from the 1st to the 5th Davar. Davar remember is the Hebrew word for a word or a thing or a sermon. Okay. The 1st Davar is Matthew 5 through 7, which we also know as the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not necessarily going to go through this in too much detail, But if you remember, we have come up with a theme about what this sermon is about, having to do with the kingdom of heaven. What is that theme? Sometimes silences are not profound. (laughs) What? The kingdom is here, or... The kingdom is now. Alright? It is here. And this is a large part of what, particularly from a standpoint of the understanding of the messianic era in Judaism, Jesus is announcing in the sermon, the messianic kingdom has arrived, and therefore, these are the ethics of the messianic kingdom. This is the spirit of the messianic kingdom. I now want to go jump to the fifth divar, which is found in Matthew twenty-four and twenty-five. We have already touched on part of this because if you remember, what part of Matthew did we look at um, with uh, Martin the Cobbler? Where was that taken? Where was that? T- the, the, the sort of theme for Martin the Cobbler taken from? What? Okay, and where is that from? Matthew 25. Okay. So, what I'd like us to do, and we will need our Bibles, and so I would like someone in good voice, we're not going to read the whole fifth of our, but I want to do Matthew 24, Verses twenty nine through thirty six. Who's got it? Okay, Cindy, twenty four, twenty nine through
2: thirty six.
1: That's right. Use the microphone, please.
2: Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other.
1: Wait a minute. More? Through 36. Sorry.
2: Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is, it is it's near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away.
1: And 36, one last verse.
2: But about that day, or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father.
1: Okay. Now if the first Davar the theme was the kingdom is now, what's the theme of the fifth Davar? What is it saying about the kingdom of God? or the kingdom of heaven to use Matthew's very Jewish terminology. What? In other words, it is to come. So this is the fundamental dynamic of the interplay between these two Devarim in Matthew's Gospel. The kingdom is now, but the kingdom is coming. Well, which is it? Is the kingdom now, or is the kingdom coming? Yes. yes. Thank you. You took the word right out of my mouth. Yes. It is both. It is both here, and it is to come. It is both now, and it is not yet. Okay? Okay. Now, as a result of that, in the apostles, they had a certain prescription for how we should live in this time between the times of the kingdom being now and the kingdom to come. And I'd like you to look at a passage in Romans twelve fifty one to 52 Romans twelve fifty one to 52. No, that's not right. I mistyped that. Uh, I think yipe. you mean 14 to 22, right? Or
0: 14
1: to 21. Uh, let's see. No, 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 no. It's 12, 14 to 21. God, I was ham-fisted on this one.
0: 14, I'm sorry,
1: 12 14, 14, t- 14 21. 14 to 21. Yeah, starting with bless those who persecute you. Who wants to read? Bless those
3: who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But take thought for what is noble and in the sight of all. It is possible... burning coals on their heads. They do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.
1: Now, does this sound familiar? What is this like? It's like what we have found in the Sermon on the Mount, in the first Devar. The golden rule of Talak Agape. Okay? In other words, the way to live in the tension between the first and the fifth Devar is to pay attention to what Jesus was saying in the first Dvar and do it. Very simply. Because here, and here comes the sort of, if there's one thing I want you to take away from this, one thing I want you to burn into your memories, And this is something I learned from our church ethicist at Sewanee where I went to seminary, Jack Giselle. And we used a book by George Farrell on Christian ethics and it talked about what was the pattern that underlay all of Christian ethics in the early church period. That is up until the time of Constantine. It was recognizing that there is a fundamental tension between the already and the not yet. The kingdom is already here, the kingdom is not yet. Now the important point is, you can't let either pole go. You have to hold them both. And you have to live in the tension between these two. It's like set, it's like a rubber band that gives the energy. How many of you ever, you know, I, when I was a kid growing up, I occasionally built those little model airplanes out of balsa wood, and they had the little rubber band motor, and you had to crank the propeller backwards so that then that rubber band motor would and give the plane flight. It was kind of fun. It was... Um, they never lasted very long, because balsa wood, of course, is not very sturdy. But the key thing is, it wouldn't fly unless the tension in the rubber band motor was, main t- was there. So you can't let the rubber band snap. Okay. Now, what that meant is that for the early church the entire ethos of the early church was as if. You have to live in a very non-messianic world, because the messianic kingdom is not yet. But you have to live as if it were. You have to live as if the kingdom is here in all its fullness even though it isn't. It is an ethics of as if. And this is rooted very much in some Jewish understandings from the Hebrew Scriptures about what it is that means that the kingdom is here in all its fullness. And we have some lovely passages to consider. I'd like you to take a look at Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Who's got it?
4: The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord.
1: All right. Uh, just, by the way, one footnote. Instruction. What would you guess the Hebrew word there for instruction is? The word is Torah. For out of Zion shall go forth Torah, divine instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, what is the hallmark, or what are the hallmarks of the kingdom that is portrayed there. First of all, what's the scope? What's the scope? Who's involved in it? The whole world. It is a universal reign. Where is its capital? Jerusalem. And what is the single most important hallmark of this universal kingdom that indicates we're there? No more warfare. No more warfare. It does remind me, though, of a cartoon I once saw. It showed this musketeer with his rapier standing in front of a blacksmith. And the blacksmith said, well, just how large a plowshare did you have in mind? But the abolition of warfare, the cessation of conflict, absolute necessity. Okay? The next passage... Is very similar. Micah four, one through five. Micah four, one through five. I can't find it in my own Bible. Too many markers. Oh, that's why I'm looking at Is someone reading? Micah 4, who's got it?
5: In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many people and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever.
1: Okay. So again, this adds a little something. It's almost the exact same message that Isaiah preached. This adds a little something to it. That little last beautiful image of every man neath his vine and fig tree, what is that basically talking about? Shall dwell in peace and unafraid. It's talking about after the cessation of war, no one needs to be afraid of violence. It is a completely nonviolent universe. And now let's expand it a little further to indicate a little something about what more we need to see goes into this kingdom. We're going back to Isaiah. Oops. Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. No, I think it's 9, 1 through... <laughs> Didn't proofread my own PowerPoint here. It's Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And we have a reader. Actually, start with verse 2. Isaiah 9, 2 through 7.
6: For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.
1: So, who is reigning in Jerusalem as God's viceroy in this peaceable kingdom? The Messiah. Okay, let's just keep it neutral for right now. Okay, the Messiah is reigning in Jerusalem. And by the way, when we talk about Prince of Peace, uh, the Hebrew is, Pela Yoetz Aviad Sar Shalom, which actually could probably be better rendered uh, the eternal God counsels a wonder, the everlasting father, a prince of peace. Now, what you may not know is that absolutely every ancient Near Eastern city-state with a king had an official who was part of the king's course court whose title was Prince of Peace. Sar Shalom. This was common. Okay. Uh, everybody had in their court a Tsar Shalom. Uh, What was the function of the Tsar Shalom? The Tsar Shalom was to be the one to bring peace through negotiation. In other words, the Secretary of State. Okay, so what is one of the functions of the Messianic King in the Messianic era? He's the bringer of peace. He's the one who brings peace to the world. And then finally, we get even more indication of how broad the scope of that peace is with Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Hopefully I got this one right. Yes. Isaiah sixty five seventeen through twenty five.
0: And a brave reader.
1: Oh, thank we'll you. We'll spread Dan. it around,
0: Cindy.
7: Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days are an old man who lives not life out his years. He who dies at a 100 will be thought of as mere youth. He who fails to reach a 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and they will dwell in them and they will plant vineyards and they will eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses And others live in them, or plant, and others eat. For the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain, nor hear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord.
1: Okay, little personal footnote here. My name, Zev, actually is Hebrew for wolf. So this is saying that lamb will no longer be a part of my diet in the, in the peaceable kingdom. Okay. Okay, no more lamb for me at that time. Now, you know, you can say, well, we're not there yet. Uh, but in any event, how far does the peaceableness, if I can use that word of the peaceable kingdom, extend? To all creatures, to the entire natural order. Because what has come about? What has God done in the meantime? What? Well, Satan does not appear in this passage. Okay? So that's not what God has done. God is saying he's about to do something. What is it he's about to do? Create a new heavens and a new earth the entire created order will be remade. Now, this is really something to keep in mind. When you speak to one of your Jewish brothers and sisters and talk about what is meant by the term the messianic kingdom, all of these things are part of it. It will be a universal reign of justice, peace, and love in a renewed heaven and earth with God as the sole ruler and the Messiah as his viceroy reigning in Jerusalem. And then when you say to them, well, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, what's their natural response going to be? Where's the kingdom? Where's the Messianic kingdom? How can he be the Messiah if there's no Messianic kingdom? What do we see in the world around us? Do we see a universal reign of justice, peace, and love? Obviously not. So, if we have to point for evidence that Jesus is the Messianic king, where are we going to have to ask our Jewish brothers and sisters to look? At our conduct at our conduct, the as-if that we are living. So now you really need to ask yourself a very serious question. When you think back on the first Devar, on the Sermon on the Mount, and the quick summary that Paul gives in Romans 12, is that the way we live? Is the ethics of the Messianic kingdom the ethics that, in fact, we live out? Big question. So the early church understood that they had to live a very impractical ethic. They had to live an ethic of as if. They had to live a messianic ethic in a non-messianic world. Now, two terms which scholars like to use for two periods before Constantine are the primitive church and the early church, and basically the primitive church refers to the immediate apostolic generation and the next generation after it, and then the early church is the period from that third generation, if you will, up until Constantine. Now, there are certain things that took place The basic apostolic pattern of discipling, of making disciples, was to preach the word and administer baptism of adults, sometimes whole families, but mostly adults, upon profession of faith. Okay? The word would be preached by the apostles or by their representatives, and people would find faith in God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then they would be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it was recognized that what happens when you have someone who's just been converted, what is their spiritual state? Their spiritual infants. So that had to be followed by instruction, or what is called didache. Didache is the Greek word. And by the way, there's a very interesting book that at one time was considered for inclusion in the New Testament called the Didache. Might be an interesting thing for you to pick up sometime and read because it gives you an idea of what new Christians were taught in the early church. Okay. Do you have a question or something back there? Oh, okay. Now, there were two crisis points that really marked the dividing line between the apostolic church and the early church that followed it. And these were two very serious crises in the life of the church. First was the death of the apostles and their immediate disciples. The death of the apostles and their immediate disciples. Why would that be a a crisis? For the church, first hand knowledge was gone. Other ideas. What had not happened yet? What? Well, nothing, very little was written down at this point. Where was the kingdom? The kingdom had not yet come. This is called by scholars the delay in the parousia. The delay in the return of Jesus. The final manifestation of Jesus. They were waiting for that on a daily basis. And they suddenly realized, wait a minute, we might have to wait a little longer than we expected. So what do we have to do in the meantime? We better get organized. We better get organized for the long haul. The second thing that happened was the assembly at Yavna in Israel by the the Mediterranean Sea. Now the assembly at Yavna did two very important things. It drew up a list of the final canonical books of the Hebrew Scriptures, of the writings. But it also added a 19th benediction to the 18 benedictions, which signified what had happened between Jews and Christians. Jews had been evicted, for, uh, Christians had been evicted from the synagogue. The Council of Jamnia decided that those who believed in the Messiahship of Jesus had stepped outside of the circle of Judaism. Now, what does that mean for Christians in the Roman world? They are no longer protected by the status of Judaism as a licit or legal religion. They are members of a new sect, which therefore is considered superstitious and is subversive. The Council of Jamnia occurred in 90... And by 112, you have Pliny the Younger, government, governor of the Roman province of Bithynia, writing a letter to Trajan discussing about the procedure he uses in the trial and execution of Christians. In other words, you're really beginning to get martyrdom. You're really beginning to get a situation where it is a crime under Roman law to be a Christian. And what that basically means is it's not going to be easy to be a Christian anymore. It's going to be extremely difficult. It's going to be an underground movement shunned by both the pagan and Jewish worlds. And therefore, you really need discipline in the church. And therefore, we have a new pattern. The first thing that happens after a person comes to the church is what is called formation. The word for this is catechumenate. You began to develop a catechumenate. All the stuff that we had in Didache is now put not after baptism, but before it. The heart of the catechumenal process was the idea that Before a person could be baptized, they had to really know, A, what were they in for? And B, how were they going to live in the light of a world that was incredibly hostile? And therefore, the core of it was a relationship between the catechumen and their catechist. A mentor-disciple relationship. And this process lasted two to three years. Everything that we think of in terms of theological education, but also formation, because the essence was the person was finally enrolled as a candidate for baptism when their catechist discerned that Christian character had been formed in this person. In other words, baptism didn't make you a Christian. Baptism recognized that you already were. That you had been formed for that. Now what happens to a catechumen who was arrested by the Roman authorities? They could, under occasions, if they would, you know, administer baptism before their death. But the other idea is they were baptized in their own blood when they were martyred. But the key thing here is baptism was not just done lightly. Baptism was for those who were mature disciples of Jesus. In other words, the catechumenate sought to replicate as a preparation for baptism the whole process that Jesus had done with his disciples. This was a replication of the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. And therefore, they took this whole first devar very seriously. And that meant that there was an important test case that you had in the Roman Empire could you be a Roman soldier and a catechumen? Could you be a Roman soldier and be a candidate for baptism? Or what would happen if you were a catechumen and told your catechist, I've decided to join the Roman army? Anybody care to guess what happens? First of all, If you are a soldier and you come to believe in Christ and want to enroll as a catechumen, you have to take an oath. And the oath is that you will not do two things. You will not perform any act of idolatry and you will not take any human life. Well, what was the function of Roman soldiers in the Roman Empire? First of all, to provide the pomp and ceremony for those state occasions which venerated the emperor, in other words, idolatry of the cult of the emperor. And the other function was to kill people. In other words, you had to take an oath that even as a soldier, you would not do any of the orders, obey any of the orders that were the whole purpose of your being a soldier. Now, what would happen then if your local centurion came and said, We're having a big ceremony to celebrate the emperor's birthday and you are expected to burn incense to the statue of the emperor and lead the way and make sure that everybody else does. What are you supposed to do under those circumstances if you're a catechumen? You're supposed to say no. What's going to happen to you? Martyrdom. Or centurion comes to you and saying, We're off to fight the barbarians. Especially those barbarians in Pict land. Otherwise known as Scotland. Okay. And you're going to have to fight. What are you supposed to do? I ain't going. Now if you already were a catechumen and you came to your catechist and said I want to join the Roman army, what happened to you? you were evicted from the catechumenate. You were evicted from the catechumenate and you could no longer be baptized. Okay, in other words, how many of you remember back in the days, I, you know, I, I went to college, it's interesting, I was hearing on, on NPR this morning that we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the year 1968. 1968 was the year I graduated from high school and went to college. Think of what happened in 1968. You had the Tet Offensive, you had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, you had the Chicago Democratic Convention, you had all those things going on, and there I was, you know, in the middle of being radicalized on the campus because as a high school student, I had advocated hot pursuit of the Viet Cong into Cambodia, and uh, I changed my tune quite a bit when I got to college. Very much quite a bit, okay? And it was a time when people were, a lot of people were trying to make sure that they did not have to serve in the army by conscientious objector status. What was one of the requirements, anybody remember for? being a conscientious objector. What did you have to belong to? You had to belong to what was called a historic peace church. A historic peace church. The Quakers, the Mennonites, the Amish, there were some churches that were historic peace churches. And you just couldn't come out and say, well, I don't like this war, so I'm not going to serve. Well, what I've just told you, and this is something known by all church historians, is that up until the coming of Constantine, the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church as a whole was a historic peace church. It was a historic peace church. Why? Go back to the first Devar. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. What are you supposed to do for enemies? Love them. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, can you fight? Now, The accession of Constantine changed everything. In many ways, the accession of Constantine changed everything. And you have to understand, Constantine was not simply interested in Christianity as a religious seeker. He wanted something from the church. He wanted to unify his empire. Don't forget, Constantine's big victory came in warfare. He was a general. He defeated his enemy at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in part by having his soldiers paint a cross on their shields. Now, I've sometimes wondered, was painting a cross on their shields a way for Roman soldiers to embrace this new faith of Christianity? Or was Constantine saying, reminding them, That's what's going to happen to you if you lose. Good motivator, that, I'm sure. Okay. But he needed to unify his empire because it had essentially been born in conflict, in civil war. This had been a problem for centuries in the Roman Empire. You constantly had civil wars, coups d'etat, etc., so, he needed to unify his empire. And so what he wanted is the church to play a role in that. He had one problem. He had to unify Christian doctrine. He had to unify the church. That required uniformity of doctrine. You could no longer tolerate the fact that you had Catholic Christians over there and you know, Coptic Christians over there, and Gnostics over there, and so on and so forth, all these different sects and groups. There had to be one official Christian teaching. And you either conformed or you were out. And hence, you have the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council of the church, Who presided over the ecumenical council? Constantine himself. The emperor Constantine sat in the chair and presided over the council to make sure that they came to the right decision, which would be the decision that would unify his empire. Bit of irony, Constantine hadn't even been baptized yet, let alone become a bishop. Okay. So the ecumenical council to decree the uniformity of doctrine and then something else happened. The authority of the empire was now used to enforce that uniformity. So what happened if you were yeah? Okay. Um, Battle of the Milvian Bridge Edict of Milan is 312 I think. 325 is the Council of Nicaea. 325 is the Council of Nicaea. From now on, if the church discerned that you were a heretic, they would try you in an ecclesiastical court, and if they found you guilty, who would they turn you over to? they would turn you over to the secular authority for execution. The church could very placidly say, oh, we've never executed anybody. The empire did that. But the empire was the enforcer. Here you have one of the key things about that relationship between Constantine and the church, which is really a part of church life and church structure very much up until the modern era. That you have the church as the overseer of uniformity of doctrine and practice and the state as the enforcer of that uniformity. The other thing is that the church had to give something back. Constantine expected something, you know, from the church, a quid pro quo. So, the church and the state were now going to be coextensive. Because if you're trying to unify your empire, and your primary instrument for doing that is a, as a unified faith, could you continue to have multiple religions in this, in this state? No, you couldn't. Everybody had to be a Christian. And as a result, you had universal, indiscriminate baptism. Up until Constantine, you didn't just waltz into the church and say, I'd like to be baptized, fine, here's some water, name the Father, Son, and the Holy... No. You had to go through two to three years of catechumenate. Now, everybody got baptized. Everybody got baptized. And the other thing that they did was that they legitimized the participation in warfare of Christians. Because now your soldiers had to be Christians. You couldn't have soldiers who wouldn't participate in war. So from now on, it's onward Christian soldiers. Okay, war becomes a legitimate Christian activity. So what do you do with the catechumenate? it's not like the whole process disappeared. Something very interesting happened. You decided that the catechumenate and with it, the first davar and its ethics of telekagape now were for clergy and monastics. They were the ones who would be formed and educated theologically, characterologically, in order to pursue the ethics of the kingdom as counsels of perfection. As counsels of perfection. The pivotal figure in this was Augustine. Augustine really played a major role in this immense theological turn and how the church did this. The first thing that he did was come up with the doctrine of original sin in the form in which he propagated it. Because what was the problem? For whom normally was baptism administered in the early church? It was adults. The whole liturgy of baptism was structured that way. So, now what were you doing? You were baptizing anything that moved. Okay? You were baptized, and so, said, wait a minute, we've got to come up with a rationale for this, theologically. And Augustine says, I'll tell you what, let us say that because of the fall, every human being without exception is born into a damned mass, a massa damnata, and is going to hell as a consequence of the fall unless they're baptized. In other words, from now on, baptism is not something that you do to demonstrate your unconditional commitment to discipleship in Christ. It is something you do to fix a child. It's something you do to fix a child. It created the rationale for indiscriminate infant baptism. The second thing is that he developed a monastic rule. How many people know what order of monastics did Martin Luther belong to? He was an Augustinian friar, and they lived by the rule of Augustine. What was the heart of the rule of Augustine? Those councils of perfection. So this enshrined the ethics of the kingdom as councils of perfection, basically for monastics to pursue. They were no longer considered appropriate for the masses. You really wanted to live according to the Sermon on the Mount? Fine, go join a monastery. Monastic life according to councils of, And finally, the third thing he developed was the first development of just war theory. Now, you have on your tables an outline... I will admit that the source of this is from a marvelous Wikipedia article, but of the criteria for what makes a just war. There are some uh, typos in this also. I notice, for example, that the very last criterion in here, um, no means it should be malum in say, evil in themselves. But you have two different categories here. Us ad bellum, the right to go to war. How do we know that it is right to go to war under this theory? And us in bello, right conduct in war. We've come to the end of our time. But what I really want you to do, I really want you, especially this is Memorial Day weekend, we are honoring those who have fought and died in war. So, what you need to do is take this home and study it and seriously ask yourselves, have we fought a just war in our history? Was there a war that meets all these criteria in our history? I'd like to close if I may, with one little interesting observation. One of the things I enjoyed when I was a kid is I was just fascinated with medieval arms and armaments and knights and swords. And you know, it's something that kids like. And I remember reading a book once, a really interesting book on the history of armor. And one of the big changes in the history of armor in the Middle Ages was the transition from chain mail armor that was basically made up of all these little links interlinked with each other, to plate armor. Anybody care to guess what the principal reason why they changed from chain mail to plate armor? It was monks. Because monks weren't supposed to bear edged weapons, were they? But they could bear battle hammers. And when you got clobbered by a monk wielding a battle hammer wearing chain mail, what did it do? It drove the links of the mail through the padding into your flesh, leaving a series of wounds that invariably got infected and killed you. And therefore, it was because of these battle hammer wielding monks living supposedly according to the counsels of perfection that knights had to start putting armor plates on over their chain mail. How successful has the church been in living up to its own understanding of the place of the Sermon on the Mount in Christian life? Any questions at this point, comments? Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me, I I didn't quite hear the question.
0: ...did to just save themselves rather than something they had in the Bible...
1: Well, I mean, you do uh, everything that you do as the church. You try to look back into scripture to find a rationale and find support. But the fact of the matter is nothing like the damnation of infants is found anywhere that I can remember anywhere in the Bible. And that's why there were a whole lot of people in the Reformation who were going back to a standard of sola scriptura who said, wait a minute, We don't find anything about baptizing infants anywhere in the Bible. That's not the pattern that the early church did. They were baptizing adults on profession of faith. Therefore, infant baptism is not baptism at all. And with that, they rejected the Augustinian doctrine of original sin. Now, that doesn't mean that original sin is not found in the Bible. But the Augustinian interpretation of that. That is what created this theological rationale. The idea is, unless you get the child baptized, the child is going to hell. That is not biblical, I hate to tell you that.
0: Did that follow um, before the church was founded, or was that for all people at any time?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you were outside the church, They had already come up with the idea, extra ecclesiam nulla salus, outside the church, no one gets saved. So yeah, if every human being born is born as part of a damn mass, I'm terribly sorry, but all you Hindus in India are going to hell. Because you haven't been fixed. That's really the implications of the Augustinian understanding. I debated whether or not I really wanted to do this, but I think I will. Because uh, in thinking about what it means to be a patriot and what it means on Memorial Day, I remember a poet by the name of Wilfred Owen, a British soldier in World War I, and he wrote this poem. It's called Dulce et Decorum Est, which is part of a Latin phrase from Horems, Dulce et Decorum Est Pro Patria Mori, how sweet and fitting it is to die for one's country. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through the sludge till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gurgling, from the froth corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cut of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum es pro patria mori. Can we have a prayer, John?
0: Father, we thank you for the scriptures, for the church of which we are a part, but most of all, we thank you that we are justified by our faith in you and not by our performance because if not, we have also failed that we could not even lift our head to you. We thank you that it is your grace and your righteousness that enables us to enter into your presence. And this day, Lord, we ask that we are empowered supernaturally to remember also that you told us, don't judge, lest you be judged. Today we think about all of the things that have gone on in our world, all the heroes, all the people that we consider enemies. We ask, God, that you would illuminate us, help us not to judge, help us to see things the way you do. And we ask for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Amen.